Hoosiers is one of the most inspiring underdog scripts of all time. It tells the story of a small-town Indiana high school basketball team who defies odds to win the state championship. Written by Indiana native Angelo Pizzo, who also wrote the 1993 film Rudy, another movie we'll be looking at later in the series, the story of Hoosiers is loosely based on a real team, the Milan High School basketball team who won the Indiana State title back in 1954. Anyone with even a passing knowledge of Indiana hoops knows how deeply ingrained basketball is in their culture. It's a way of life. Here's Angelo. The reason initially uh, I was drawn to do this film was because of my perception of the unique relationship between basketball and the people of Indiana. It was unlike any other state uh, in, in, in the country. Not only did Angelo grow up in a state that loved basketball, it was part of his own childhood. A kid couldn't walk into the school without passing a layup line. Our first house was two blocks from the old field house where they play games. And I, I would go over there and, and when I was six, seven, eight years old and, and rebound free throws for the, the basketball team. That's how deeply embedded uh, Indiana basketball is. The field house Angelo mentioned there was the IU field house, home of many national championships and home of the Hoosiers from 1928 to 1960. It's about two hours west of Milan. Bobby Plump was one of the stars of the 1954 Milan High School basketball team. In fact, he hit the shot at the end of the game to win the state championship, just like we see in the film. He's essentially the real-life Jimmy Chitwood, although he talks a whole lot more than Jimmy Chitwood does in the movie. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think Jimmy Chitwood only speaks twice the entire film. Here he is explaining why basketball was such a huge part of his life in Indiana in the 50s. When I graduated from high school, I didn't have a telephone. We never had running water. Didn't have electricity till I was 13. They had to call me to tell me I was Mr. Basketball to a neighboring store. They had to come get me, and I had to call them back, collect. So there wasn't a whole heck of a lot to do. So we played a lot of basketball and baseball. The entire story of the 54 Milan High School basketball team was the stuff of legends in Indiana. Every basketball-loving kid in the state knew about them. Milan was a town of 1,100, 45 miles due west from Cincinnati. We had 161 in the top four grades. There were 30 in my graduating class. And when the new coach came in, basketball was such an interest. There were 74 boys out of the 161. When he called the first practice, 58 of the 74 boys in high school came out for the team. He had a tough time cutting it down just to two teams. The new coach was Marvin Wood. Mid-20s, a star at Morristown High School in Indiana before playing three years at Butler University under the legendary Tony Hinkle. This stint at Milan would kickstart a 22-year coaching journey that culminated in an induction into the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame in 1975. And just like in the movie, the appointment of a new coach was the impetus for the Milan High School team winning the championship. I would say that that story inspired the movie uh, and was the catalyst for me wanting to make the movie because growing up in Indiana, before every championship tournament, any state tournament, and this is in the, in the days of the single class system, 
where everybody was thrown into the same pot. Uh, this story was trotted out, the Milan story, as an inspiration for other small teams. Maybe you can, this can happen to you, too. So um, it became legendary and it became you know, part of the state folk myth. So initially, my idea was to tell the Milan story. So Angelo started researching the Milan High School team. He found as much information as he could at where else? The local library. And he interviewed many of the players who were on that team. But it was during one of these interviews that Angelo realized he had a problem. He would not be able to turn this remarkable story into a movie. And the reason I couldn't do this movie was because of a principle I learned in um, a screenwriting analysis course at USC, which is um, the fundamental basis of, of all drama is conflict. Without conflict, there is no drama. And my interview with this, uh, this player was uh, I asked him, did uh, everybody on the team get along? Oh, we loved each other. We were like a family. What about you and the coach and the coach and the team? Oh, we loved him. He loved us. It was like, this could have been the greatest snooze fest of all time if I had just written as it was. Whether it's the football players at newly integrated T.C. Williams High School in Remember the Titans overcoming prejudice and winning the state championship or the basketball players at Richmond High School in Coach Carter, learning to trust their newly appointed strict head coach. Conflict is an integral part of any movie, let alone a sports movie. There was universal love from the town, from the players. There was no movie there. There was, I mean, the only thing that was significant about what they did was this town with 65 boys in it in this high school that was, you know, probably uh, 740th smallest school out of 762 high schools, won the state championship. That fact alone was the reason that I was drawn to it. But nothing else in the movie, nothing else about the true story really worked. So I decided to keep the idea and create characters uh, out of whole cloth. So Angelo began shaping what would be his new screenplay, a story about a basketball team inspired by the Milan High School basketball squad. During the writing process, Angelo was very careful about how he was writing the characters and the town within the film. We felt a tremendous amount of responsibility to portray the people of this state where we grew up uh, accurately and with love and with respect. Because the perception of people who live in Indiana were like hayseeds and farmers or drive fast cars around tracks, <laughs> you know, shot hoops. Uh, but uh it was, in a sense, it was an homage to the influences that on us uh, growing up, the importance of basketball, the meaning of basketball to the community, to the townspeople. One thing about the 54 Milan High School basketball team that Angelo did keep in the first draft of the screenplay was the fact that the head coach was 26, fresh, young, and eager. But after reading it over, he realized something wasn't quite right. Something about that character was missing. And it just so happened that I went to see a movie starring Robert Duvall called Tender Mercies, where he played Max Sledge, a broken down country Western singer. And I felt, you know, that's what I need. I need I need a, a, an older guy. Who, this is his last chance. So there's something much more at stake. If you fail at 26, you got the rest of your life to figure out, I'll go get another job here. I'll do something else there, whatever. So um, that I changed that and put that in my next draft. 
And thus was born the character of Norman Dale, a middle-aged, disgraced, former college coach turned naval officer who was given one last chance at redemption. When the script was finally completed, it made its way into the hands of Bobby Plump. The first I knew about the movie, one of my teammates, Roger Schroeder, his daughter was involved with movie making and she had a copy of the original script and it's a good thing I wasn't a producer because I read it and I thought man this ain't gonna be no good at all you know Bobby didn't love the screenplay but the right people did it even attracted the interest of some of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time including Jack Nicholson David Ansball who I mentioned um, who is the director and my my college roommate um we decided to do this as a, you know, as a team uh, together. He worked for the Aspen Ski Corporation out of undergraduate school before he went to USC. And he got to know Jack really well because he was a ski host. He was always hosting Jack and his daughter, uh, Jennifer, and taught Jennifer how to ski. So they became good friends. So there was a point when we were trying to raise the money and figure out how to get the movie done that uh, David and I discussed, well, you know, Jack loves basketball. He just directed this movie called Drive, he said, about a small town basketball college um, in Ohio. And, you know, maybe he could help us give some ideas about um, raising money for it. Uh, Maybe he can point us in the right direction. So he called Jack up and said, yeah, come on up on Saturday and we'll talk about it. So Saturday rolls around, and Angelo and David get to Jack Nicholson's Hollywood match. It's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and of course Jack is still asleep, recovering from a Jack Nicholson Friday night, whatever that may be. They wait around for a little while until he finally wakes up, hair sticking straight up, you can picture it, and asks them what they're doing there. They explain they're here to show him the script. He says, put it on the table in the foyer. So we go on the foyer, uh, there's a stack of scripts this high, (laughs) so... Meanwhile, and we ne- we're driving home, we're laughing, we think, well, that was a waste of time, we'll never hear from him again. And um, David calls me about, I think it's about a month later, and he's like in tears. And I said, what's, what's wrong? He was hysterical. I said, what? I just got a call from Jack. He said, hey, I read your script. I like that part. I'll do it. Well, we never actually gave it to him. We wanted financial advice from him. But he said he wanted to do it. Of course, David didn't correct him. And he said, great. So here he is, the great Jack Nicholson, who only a few years earlier won the Academy Award for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's their guy for a whole three months. And then this happens. He got into a lawsuit with MGM over a a, a movie that had fallen out and they weren't giving him pay or play and he he had to um, he had to to not work for that period of time when the lawsuit was going on. The movie that had fallen out was called Roadshow and was set to star Nicholson alongside Mary Steenburgen and Timothy Hutton. And that was right when we were scheduled to go to Indiana and shoot it in the fall. And he told us, "Look, guys, I'm not going to be able to do it this fall because of the lawsuit, and I'm committed next year to doing the sequel to Chinatown, The Two Jakes." So it's three years. You don't want to wait for me for three years. You got to make this now. And he said, go to Duvall or Hackman. So we actually went to Duvall next. And then uh, Duvall read the script. We met with him. He said, I love the script. He said, 
is so similar to this Max Sledge guy that I, <laughs> and and, uh, and also the great Santini. I feel too close, it's too close to two characters I feel like I've already done. He said, take it to Hackman. So that's when we went to Gene. Hackman, who up until that point had been nominated for three Oscars and won one for his role in The French Connection, intuitively understood the Hoosier State's obsession with basketball. Why? He had grown up in Danville, Illinois, right across the state line from Indiana. Basketball was in his bones. We look back and think it was a blessing in disguise because at that time, Jack was like, the, you know, he and Burt Reynolds were the two biggest stars in, in the business. It would have been a Jack Nicholson movie. It would not have been an ensemble piece, which it was, because Gene, let's face it, is a character actor. He's not a leading man. And that's what we needed in that particular part. Although Hackman understood what he needed to bring to the role, his portrayal of Coach Dale was nothing like the real Milan coach Marvin Wood. Wood was mild-tempered, soft-spoken. He was just totally different than the coach uh, in the movie, uh, Gene Hackman. He never raised his voice. He never got a technical, was never thrown out of a game. And that brings us to the casting for the roles of the players. In countless sports films, and you know what I'm talking about, we've seen actors who are obviously terrible athletes. Angelo and David Anspaugh, the director of the film, were very conscious of this. Robert De Niro couldn't throw a baseball and bang the drum slowly. Jimmy Pearsall, you know, and Anthony Perkins and Fear Strikes Out. I mean, it goes on uh, to me, Robbie Benson and One on One, which was a joke. Honestly, he played one of the top high school recruits in the country. So they were training him right near the park where I was playing pickup basketball, Culver City, right near MGM. And I, I wasn't good enough to make my small high school team, you know, in Bloomington. I kicked his ass on a regular basis. And he was a guy who's supposed to play one of the regular, the best players in the country. And that's why it was so important for Angelo and David to cast actors who could actually play the game of basketball. In order to do this, they had to come up with a set of rules. I have a limit of three lines for every player. And for my best player, I'm only going to give them two lines. So that's why where, where amateur actors are exposed is in dialogue. You know, if you can create a comfortable environment where they, their behavior, you know, basically expresses who they are. And that's what we did. We cast too tight, pretty much. We, we cast personalities, we cast faces, and we cast players who could play. I mean, this was a really, you know, these are really good players. And uh, the funny thing is that the guy who played Ollie, that was the biggest stretch because he was one of the best shooters on the team. He could really play. So he had to, we had to train him how to play badly. So Angelo and David got through the shoot and created a first cut they were happy with. They presented that first cut, which ran almost two and a half hours, to Orion Pictures. Orion had an obligation deal with Hemdale Pictures to release the film, and they were already unhappy with the initial script. They just said, there's not a chance in hell we're going to release this film, and we're not going to market it. So you've got to figure out something else. You've got to come back with another cut. Now, David, because of the DGA, uh, was allowed a single test screening under his guild contract. So he chose to do this two hour and 28 minute cut. We had never shown it in front of anybody other than friends and family and the studio. So, I mean, we didn't know because all our friends and family knew the script and, and every, they knew everything so well 
And then kind of random people that we brought in, they, they liked it, but what are they going to say? You know, we know they we had no idea before we went down to Irvine, California and handed out passes in a shopping center to random people who showed up going in. That was the most nervous I've ever been for any screening. Uh, and uh, we knew that if we bombed, you know, with that version, that we would not get distributed. We would not get, uh, we'd not have a chance. So um, we did take a chance by doing that. As it turned out, very early on, the, the audience locked in. Uh, they laughed and they cried and they, we, they laughed in places that we didn't anticipate they would laugh. And it was the highest score in the history of Orion Picture. We scored a 94. And uh, that was like, that's through the roof. Uh, they hadn't had a 90 plus uh, score in 10 years. And so uh, I'll never forget the conversation we had uh, with the president of the studio, Mike Metavoy, as we walked out. He said, boy, I didn't see that coming. He said, all right, here's the deal. You can have your stupid title, Hoosiers. And they wanted to call it the last shot. All right. That was their that was their pushing. But we are not going to release a two hour and 28 minute movie cut. I, and he said, we're not going to tell you what to cut since you guys obviously know what you're doing because of that response. You figure out how to take that last half hour out. So that was we spent an arduous three weeks to a month taking that 30 minutes out and killed us. Well, Angelo apparently survived. He took 30 minutes out of the film. Orion released it, and crowds loved it. Said Roger Ebert, Hoosiers works like magic in getting us to really care about the fate of the team and the people depending on it. It combines sports with human nature. It's a movie that is all heart. Bobby Plump remembers the first time he saw the film. The Indianapolis Star asked me to write an article on a sneak preview that they had for the movie here, and Angelo Pizzo, the writer and and co-producer came through and uh, David Anspaugh and I had this little pad back then you know and I was going to write notes and it started and they're coming through that scene and the cornfield and I wrote two sentences I became so involved I didn't write anything else so I had to do the article without any notes that's how I was impressed by the movie One of Bobby's favorite moments in the film is when Coach Dale takes his players into the gym where the state championship is to be played. He gets his players to measure out the court and tells them, I think you'll find it's the exact same measurements as our gym back in Hickory. And that's as good of an impression of Gene Hackman as I can do, folks. I apologize. It may be why I was never nominated for an Academy Award. Although the speech didn't happen in real life, Bobby Plump remembers a moment that was very similar. We're walking into the field house uh, for the Sweet 16 on a Friday before the games on Saturday. And we've got our satchels and everything. And we're talking and going in. We get next to the uh, next to the floor and it just got everybody got quiet. Man, we're looking around. We didn't measure the thing. But Bob Engel, one of our players, said, put a lot of hay in this place, couldn't you? And that kind of broke the ice. Of all the accuracies in Hoosiers, the most important was, of course, the final 18 seconds of the championship game. It was the shot, the moment that made Jimmy Chitwood a legend. Angelo called me aside after it was over, and he said, Bob, did we get the last 18 seconds right? We wanted that to be correct, and I said, you nailed it. Bobby remembers in detail how those final 18 seconds played out for the real Milan basketball team. Well, here's what happened uh, in the huddle. Uh, I'm supposed to have ice water in my veins, you know, and all that stuff. We get in the huddle, and 
Woody said, here's what we're going to do. He says, Kraft, you take it out and throw it to Bob, me. We're tied 30 to 30. He says, Bob, you just dribble it. There's 18 seconds to go. He said, you just dribble around till maybe there's three or four seconds to go. If you can, shoot with enough time left in case you miss it, we might tip it in. Gene White, our starting center, said, well, Woody, if we're going to do that, why don't we get on the left side over here? And Woody said, that's a good idea. Let's." I said, let's go over it again. He says, Kraft, you take it out and throw it to Bob. Guess who took it out of bounds? I did. But when you hit the winning shot, nobody says anything about that mistake. But that's exactly what happened in the uh, huddle. And I Ray got it back to me, and I did dribble. There were three seconds to go when I left it and it's exactly what the shot was in the movie and if you're a scorer you know whether it's going in or have a good idea or not and i felt like it was going in and if if you ever see the film of that final game you'll see we went back on defense because there's three seconds to go yet and they, it wasn't as sophisticated then. They took it out, threw it in, and, and Leon Angolano had it cocked like that. He was going to throw it three-quarters of the length. The buzzer went off, and we were state champions, and 15,000 fans were on the floor. I think we were up on the floor an hour and a half signing autographs after all the ceremonies and things. Listen, as a sports fan, when you sit down with your buddies and start having a conversation about the greatest sports movies of all time, it may not start with, it may not end with Hoosiers, but if it's not part of your list, you're exempt from the conversation. It's one of those movies that once it comes on television, I don't care where you pick it up, you're watching it until the end. You know the end. You know how it finishes. You know he's going to make the shot every time, and yet you can't turn away. I will tell you, I coached all of my kids' basketball teams, and I have three boys. And every year before a season started, I would make them watch Hoosiers. And I wouldn't make them watch it because of the inspirational message or the fact that it was a team game and that's how you win. I made them watch it because I wanted to watch it again. And that was just another excuse to watch that movie over and over. I will never get tired of Hoosiers. I don't care who you are, where you are. If you're a sports fan, you don't have to be a basketball fan. It's impossible not to love Hoosiers. So why do we think this movie resonates with so many people? Why has Hoosiers touched so many? Bobby has a theory. Every actor that played on the basketball teams, not just Hoosiers, but all the remaining ones, all of them but one, were actual basketball players from Indiana. And because of the underdog story and because it actually did happen, you know, second chances... That resonates real well in that movie. Just like the 54 championship, Hoosiers is a film that will be celebrated for a long time. It will never get old. When Angelo Pizzo first conceived of the idea all those years ago, he had no idea what sort of impact it would have all around the world. It's an understatement to say it was a pleasant surprise that it was received so well. And I could probably go on and say it's a almost a shock that it's sustained in uh, popular culture as long as it has. And why wouldn't Bobby Plump feel the same way? Two years ago, I got four letters from kids in Paris, France, asking for my autograph. And about eight months ago, a sportscaster from Spain called and wanted to know if I'd be on his program. So the movie 
just took it worldwide and uh, it's been a good ride. Coming up next week on The Replay. We started in September of 87 when we have our selection. We spent some time in Jamaica with this makeshift uh, sled and wheels pushing it, just practicing the start. And then in mid-October of 87, we went to Calgary and they said, well, this is what the track looks like and this is a bobsled. Crawl in. The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our lead producer, Chris Tyler, and SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Sirius XM Podcasts.